Thank you for joining us here on the Radio Bible Chorus. We're continuing our study of the opening verses in 1 Thessalonians. Paul has written, We give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In yesterday's lesson, we pointed out that the work of faith, in all probability, did not refer to good works, but rather some kind of activity that proved their faith. And in verse 8 of the opening chapter, we see an example of what they did, why they carried the gospel throughout Macedonia and in Achaia. They talked to everybody about the good news. They weren't fearful about having believed in Jesus Christ, they wanted other people to know. Now, the second characteristic of the Thessalonians was their labor of love. Now, I think this is talking about good works. It's not referring to some small services done without reward. We often use this expression, well, that's a labor of love when you do some little thing for somebody. Labor is a strong word here. It suggests the cost associated with some activity. And it probably refers to toil, probably for other people. I am of the opinion that the labor of love of the Thessalonians refers to the good works of these people, which was done in love and probably cost them something. That, of course, is the meaning of love. It's this Greek word agape. It's a new idea in the world, and it came with Jesus Christ. It means unselfish love. Last week I was asked, What does the Bible mean by love? And I was quick to explain that it means doing good for someone else at your expense. It's sacrificial love. It is never an expression. It is always action. I have told my class members many times, don't tell me you love me. Show that you love me. That's what counts. And if you show people that you love them, then you won't have to tell them that you love them. Now, there's one exception to that, and that applies to married couples. They seem to want to be assured of the love of a mate in spite of the things we do for them. But generally speaking, love is what we do, not what we talk about. The book of Genesis doesn't talk about God loving the world and therefore creating it. But we do read in the Bible about love in regard to the cross. And We wouldn't know love if it were not for what we read about Jesus Christ going to that cross. As the Apostle John put it in his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 10, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, We also ought to love one another. John's instruction then tells us, 
that we know love by what God did and how Christ offered himself as a sacrifice. We can't understand love by what Hollywood tells us. Love is a commitment, and it's a desire to serve. It's not an emotion. Now, there is another Greek word for love. That's eros. That's romantic love between the sexes. And think of it. A young man who sees a young woman that he's very attracted to, he wants to possess that woman. But not necessarily, so that he can do good for her. Oftentimes, that kind of love is selfish. A man wants a woman for himself and for his own pleasure. Well, that's the idea of eros love. But God loves without thought of advantage for himself. He loves without even seeing worthiness in any of us. And his love cost him something. It cost him his son. You see, agape love, that's the Greek word for love, is for another's advantage, not for ours. And these Thessalonians had the labor of love, reaching out to other people, doing something for someone else, and paying a price while they did it. Agape love, like God's love, gives for another's benefit. But it operates fully without any desire for reciprocation. Now, the third characteristic of these people in Thessalonica was their steadfastness of hope. Hope has to do with the future. Faith looks back to an event or to a promise. But hope looks into the future. It doesn't mean that there's something doubtful about it. When we today say, I hope so, that means there's an element of doubt. There's a wish for something without any promise that that will be fulfilled. But not so in the Bible. When it talks about hope, it refers to something that is certain. And what was the steadfastness of the Thessalonians' hope? The return of Jesus Christ. As I pointed out earlier in the week, each chapter in this first epistle of Thessalonians refers to the return or the coming or the appearance of Jesus Christ. When a Christian focuses his sight on the return of Jesus Christ, many good things happen. One thing is certain. He won't be occupied with this world or this life. The second thing that happens is that if he's thinking about the coming of Jesus Christ, he will become more pure as a Christian. The Apostle John wrote about that also. He said, Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In this busy world, it's often difficult to keep our minds on the fact that Jesus promised to return and that he will return. However, we can help ourselves by memorizing a passage about the return of Jesus Christ. How about the last passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1? 
and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, if you don't like that one, go to chapter 4 and begin with verse 16. And if you'd prefer a passage from Jesus himself, go to John chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. By memorizing a passage of God's holy word, you'll be reminded constantly that Jesus is coming back. The promise is sure. God promised it. God will fulfill it. Now we move on to verse 4 where Paul writes, For we know, brethren beloved by God, that he has chosen you. For our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He uses the word brethren, beloved by God. In this epistle and in the second epistle to the Thessalonians, we have this word brethren used 21 times. It is the most common word to refer to a Christian. We are called brethren because we are in the family of God, brothers and sisters who have believed in Jesus Christ and have received the Spirit of God along with eternal life. We are family members, and so we are called brethren. This is the most frequent term used in the entire Bible for the Christian. It's used 180 times. Yet the word Christian is used only three times. If you want to be biblical, refer to believers in Christ as brethren. And if you want to be more biblical, respect them and treat them as family members, as brethren. None are a part of the family of God except those who have been born of God. You can't get into the family without a birth. Not until a person possesses the Spirit of God is he a child of God. So we ought not to refer to people who go to churches as being brethren, because they may not be. The only way you know if someone is a believer is if he tells you he is. And even then, you can't be positively sure. But it's none of our business. Once a person tells us he believes and we have some reasonable idea that he understands what he's talking about, we need to accept them as brethren and love them. And, of course, hold them responsible for living up to the word of God and up to the standards which we find in the New Testament. In Romans 8, 9, Paul writes, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So you see, this is the common denominator of the Christian family. Everyone who is a brother in Christ has the Spirit of Christ given to him. No place in the Bible are we told to pray for the Spirit. We are to believe for the Spirit. The promise is that whoever believes in Jesus Christ, out of his belly, Jesus said, will flow rivers of living water. And the Apostle John explained in chapter 7 of his Gospel that this referred to the Spirit which would be given to those who believe. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, it's time that you believed that you have the Spirit. 
Don't yearn for the Spirit. Don't pray for the Spirit. And don't go to a meeting to receive the Spirit. Go to the Bible, John 7, 37 to 39, and see what God has said. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. There you will read in verse 13, In him you also, who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and have believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Yes, we do receive the Spirit when we believe. That's how it happened in the Bible, and that's how it happened today. But don't expect to feel the Spirit. The Spirit is not material. This has nothing to do with an experience. This has to do with faith. The Holy Spirit of God is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He's the presence of Christ in our life. Well, where in the Bible does it say we receive the Spirit by faith? Well, Galatians 3.14 is one of those places. That in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You will want to know more about the significance of believing in Christ for salvation. Our booklet on Heaven's Password will thoroughly explain how to be forgiven. Write for your free copy. Until next week, this is Nick Calavota reminding you that the word gospel means good news. Our address is Radio Bible Courses, Post Office Box 14916, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 70898. The website is rbcword.com.